to Innovating Humanity, the official podcast for Birmingham Tech. I'm Jude Jennison, the host of this podcast, and I'm the founder of Leaders by Nature, a leadership and team development company. I work with senior leadership teams to help them align through behavioural change. In this podcast, we'll be exploring the intersection between technology, humanity and leadership and looking at how we use technology to be more human and increase emotional connection and enhance the way that we live and work. I'll be interviewing leaders from technology businesses who are at the forefront of changing how we live and work. You will not want to miss this. Some of the conversations have been enlightening and inspiring and I hope you enjoy them as much as I have done. David Glenwright is Head of Training and Special Projects at JC Social Media, a social media and digital marketing agency. We discuss how history repeats itself on social media and how social media magnifies how we show up as human beings offline. We discuss polarisation, the fundamentals of human behaviour, the, the importance of authenticity, what it is to be real, the vulnerability of posting and the ability to use social media to form valuable connections with like-minded people, and so much more. Have a listen. Hi, David. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Jude. An absolute pleasure. Can you tell us who you are and what you do, please? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm David Glenwright. I'm the Head of Training and Special Projects at JC Social Media. Uh, JC Social Media is, as the name suggests, a specialist social media uh, management and marketing agency based in Birmingham, uh, and my role is to kind of work with clients, businesses, organisations of all shapes and sizes and help them to develop their own social media skills and plan their digital marketing strategies. And how did you get into social media? I'm not entirely sure, if I'm honest. Um, I've been working in social media my entire career. So I've been working in social media for about eight, nine years or so um, straight out of university but I didn't study marketing at university I actually have a degree in war studies from the University of Birmingham okay. um, so if you're interested in the evolution of British armour doctrine in the Normandy campaign June to September 1944 very happy to chat about that because uh, yeah it was kind of a weird transition from a from a, a degree that was very heavily history based but also drew on lots of different areas uh, economics, sociology, psychology, theology, all sorts of different aspects all kind of fed into this degree that looked at basically why wars exist and the impact that warfare has on society. Interesting. And then, and then of course, that where that takes me is the wars that we have on social media. I mean, is, is there a link there or is that just my brain making some tenuous link there? I, you know, I, I've found a lot of links as I've been training more and more over the years when I first got into social media I kind of thought oh well you know my degree was fun you know it was good it was fascinating it developed your standard transferable skills research communication skills all those bits and pieces but content wise I kind of dismissed my degree but over the years I've realized that there's actually lots of things that I can draw from it and there's, there's a character that I often uh, introduce in, in my training sessions. Um, I don't know, you may have heard of him, you may not have heard of him, a, a chap by the name of Karl von Clausewitz. And I've heard the name, but go he, on. Yeah, he, he's, he's, a, he's a Prussian general. He's an old Prussian general from the 
uh, late 18th, early 19th century. And he wrote a, um, we started to write a, a treatise uh, called On War. And it looks at um, basically the principles of war and the principles around objectives. And this whole idea that not all objectives are created equally, that in order to achieve some things, you first need to do other things. So kind of looking at cause and effect within objective setting. And it's something that I've been able to kind of take out of a military context and apply directly to developing digital marketing strategies with clients. So we take a long look at, okay, well, that's where you want to be. You want to be the biggest shoe company in the UK. Well, how do we do that? How do we do that? How do we do that? And we look at how different objectives slot in and enable other things to happen, both within social media, but also within a wider sales and marketing context. So it's actually proven to be quite a useful degree in the end. Yeah, and I'm, I'm really fascinated by the idea that you're, you, you're drawing on that, but also the fact that history does inform how we do things in the future, doesn't it? And, and sometimes we repeat history, sadly, um, but actually it can inform us. Are there, are there other examples that you've got of where um, what, what we're seeing today could be informed by history? Like particularly the history that you know, obviously. Yeah, I, I, th- I think there is. And I think there is something that I often talk about when talking about social media um, is that it's nothing new. That it's, we're going through the motions that as a society we have done previously. Um, one example that I always use is LinkedIn. So I do a lot of LinkedIn training and sometimes I'll come across a, a sales manager for a company. They've been there for 30 years and they have very much a you can't teach an old dog new tricks mindset. I know my way. I know how to how to generate sales. LinkedIn is this newfangled thing. I don't get it. I can't use it. And what we do is we look at kind of actually how fundamentally at its core LinkedIn is no different to going to a networking event. The the principles and the way in which you act and behave at a networking event can be directly transplanted and applied to LinkedIn. So you wouldn't walk up to someone at an event, give them a business card and walk away. So therefore, why would you send someone a connection request without explaining the reason behind it? And we can look back throughout history at the way in which people interact, why people interact, what people are seeking to gain out of interactions, the relationships that are made. And we can apply all of that to social media because fundamentally we're not doing anything different on social media. It's just the mechanism and the means by which these relationships are developed and nurtured has evolved. And I love that because what because they're, therefore what you're saying, I think, or what I'm hearing, <laughs> what I'm hearing you say is that what we're doing with social media is a manifestation of what we're doing generically in life, human being to human being. And, and if we come back to the wars on social media as, a, as an example of the polarisation that you that we see, that we're seeing a lot at the moment on on all of the social media platforms is a manifestation of the polarization polarization that exists in the fabric of our society. Absolutely. I mean, if you take, for example, political debate, uh, political discourse on, on social media, 
there's been a lot of discussion about how social media has polarized opinions because it creates almost an echo chamber. You know, you talk about opinion A, and the way social media works is it shows you lots of content from other people that agree with you, and you kind of become con- more and more convinced and convicted of that opinion. Mm. Fundamentally, that's no different to going back 50 years when you might go to a working man's social club or you might go to the local conservative club or the liberal club. You have venues, bars that are social spaces that are based on a political opinion. You go there, everyone's going to agree with you. And again, you're in that echo chamber. So social media gets a lot of flack for kind of polarising opinions. But actually, our parents, our grandparents, their social, their physical social circles would fundamentally doing exactly the same thing. I think it's just because it's on a bigger scale, a more visible scale. It's happening in a public space rather than behind closed doors. I think as a whole, as a society, we're probably more attuned and more aware of it, which is why it feels more extreme these days. And it feels more more magnified because it's on a global scale rather than on, on a on a local scale. But also what you touch on there is the the fundamentals of human behavior which are we navigate towards the people who think like us who behave like us and we we will make a judgment the moment we shake somebody's hand not that we're doing that at the moment but the moment we shake somebody's hand we make a judgment about whether we trust them or like them or what they're like and then we look for the information that backs up what we think about that person And we discard the things that don't back up what we've already emotionally made up as a judgment. And whereas most people think that they're making their judgments rationally, we're actually making them emotionally first and then using the data to to rationalise what was an emotional judgment. And so what I'm hearing is we're doing that on a much bigger scale in social media. So with that in mind, then, are we... You know, obviously, our our grandparents had a local community. Now the global community is our is our community. Um, Does that make it does that make it easier to navigate towards people so we can create communities or does it and and or does it enable us to have wider conversations because we're seeing the polarization where we previously might not have done? I think I think that there are positives and there are there are negatives. I think that it is now easier more than ever to find like-minded people and to be accepted as part of communities. There have been numerous studies about, for example, about um, bullying, uh, teenage bullying on social media, and the studies found that a staggeringly high number of people. Uh, young people have been bullied through social media but almost an equal number of people have found sanctuary and support through social media so if you've got someone um, for example if you've got someone in a small community school and they are of a different religious faith to anybody else in that school without social media there was very much an isolation it was just them but through social media they're able to identify people, peers across the country, around the world in a similar position to them. And they're able to form 
valuable, very important um, communities that are uh, an anchor for their own mental health and their own mental well-being. At the same time, I think the fact that everything is so out there and public on a, and on a global scale, it's easier to, and I don't like to use this word lightly, but to always become radicalised with your opinions. And I don't necessarily mean that in the way that the word radicalise is often used uh, these days, but it's very easy to kind of cultivate a community around you that agrees with you. And what you then start to see happening is because there's no one ever challenging ideas. And in fact, people are suggesting, well, what about this? What about this? Going a step further, step further. You actually find yourself drifting towards more and more extreme idea and there's some evidence to suggest that that actually happened with brexit for example on both sides mm. of the argument mm. this echo chamber was pushing people to a point where people go okay well actually this doesn't go far enough we need to go further we need to go further because there was no challenge and there was only one-sidedness so you can in some instances if you're not careful and if the social media platforms themselves aren't careful it can kind of create this polarization and kind of this uh, extreme push away from um, the centre, whether that be political centre or any kind of opinion-based uh, position. It's a challenging thing, and I think it's something that social media companies themselves are trying to wrap their heads around and work out how they can create an environment that a user enjoys but also doesn't necessarily create a, a bias in any way. Fascinating. Um, what, what examples have you got of where businesses, because what I'm thinking is for, for a business that actually wants to niche down and reach a particular type of person, then those algorithms are absolutely in favour of that business doing that, aren't they? Because they they weed out all of the businesses that don't look and think and feel like their product or service, which means that it's going to be so much easier for me to find people who are like me, who are naturally going to agree with me instantly. Um, and yet they may, might not be my perfect clients. Hmm. Um, so what examples of you, because so, so I, I work a lot with left brain thinking types of organizations, so technology, finance sector, not, not exclusively. And yet I'm very right brain, very creative, very emotionally connected. And so I'm bringing the, the yin to the yang or the, you know, I'm, I'm looking at how do we look at human behavior as a holistic behavior. I'm not suggesting technology and finance sectors aren't doing that because they are. Um, but how, what examples have you got of organisations who are using social media well? Um, so I, there, there's low, many examples. I, I think part of it, or a, a big part of it, is businesses that are successful understand their audience. And I don't mean in a very surface level okay well it's uh, men that age 25 to 35 it is a much deeper understanding of their their personalities their hobbies their, their interests and it's about creating content that kind of exploits that in a way that gives that user that individual some value add benefit mm. so 
Um, a, a classic example is innocent drinks, innocent smoothies. Um, every year they have a very, very active social media campaign around the Great British Bake Off as a TV programme. So every night, uh, whenever an episode of that of the Bake Off is on, Innocent are posting a running commentary of what's going on. They're commenting on the episode in a very comic way, tongue in cheek, their classic humour style running through that. At no point are they promoting their products. They're not saying, oh, that was a lovely cake, we'll go lovely with our smoothie. They're just talking about the TV programme because they understand that that is something that is of great interest to a very wide demographic in the UK, which is their target market. Mm -hmm. Posting that content means that people want to see what they're up to. They want to invite that brand into what is fundamentally a very personal space. Social media is a personal space. The first people that you connect with when you join a social media platform are your closest friends. Mm. It's early In its early origins, social media was about digitizing existing friendships, relationships, yeah. friends reunited. Yeah. That was about connecting with your existing friends, not meeting new people. Social media is at its core a deeply personal thing. And we don't like to be advertised in our own time, in our own space. So the brands that we're most comfortable in inviting into that space are brands that offer us something, that give us some kind of value add benefit. So supermarkets, for example, are all doing this a lot these days, is they put a lot of energy into providing recipes and meal ideas. That's not the supermarket's job. That's not what they do as a business. They sell the ingredients, the products, but... Those recipes are things that we as consumers find useful. We gain, we benefit, we're educated by that. And so we put that brand into our community. Sorry, sorry about that. That's all right. <laughs> so, yeah, so, so what I'm hearing you say then is that, um, and this is my perspective on it, is that at its best, the businesses who are, who are doing social media well are using it as an opportunity to engage in a conversation with their potential their potential consumers whether that's b2b or whether it's b2c it's about creating conversation which is and i really hate the cliche of people by people but actually that there is something about how do we use social media to build those relationships and then over time we start to trust those people understand what what they're I mean it's a great way of understanding what our clients need isn't it is to to follow conversations on on social media absolutely and I think it's, it's about building that relationship to get to a point where as a brand you don't actually need to sell so if we take for example a a hair salon a hair salon could at its very base level goes hi we're this hair salon come and book an appointment for us we'll cut your hair but if that salon shares a lot of content giving you advice on how to style your hair at home, how to look after greasy hair, frizzy hair, how to do a lockdown haircut, all of these kind of things builds up that rapport and that relationship. As a consumer, you begin to trust that brand because they're giving you information freely that you value and you benefit from. 
and it reaches a point where you go, actually, you know what? I need to get my hair cut. I'm going to go to them. They've been so good to me. They've given me this information that it's been useful content. I'm familiar with the brand. I feel like I know the staff that work there. Mm. I want to go to you and book an appointment. So it's about almost shifting the, the purchase decision. We don't like being sold to. Mm-hmm. So brands that are successful on social media don't sell to consumers. Instead, they develop a relationship to a point where the consumer actively wants to buy from the brand. And because the consumer feels more in control of that transaction, they're more likely to commit to it. So it's about it's about um, drawing people in and and giving people the choice, isn't it? Absolutely. And enabling and empowering the consumer to be in control of that decision. Yeah. If they want to purchase, great. If they don't want to purchase, that's not a problem. We're still here for you to share this great content for us to engage you, for us to develop that relationship. As a consumer, it's your choice. We're here either way. So and people absolutely. like that and they respect that. Yeah, they, they do. And and yet I can also see how it can be manipulated. <laughs> so how do we how do we make sure that we're not because because like, like with anything, there will be people who will genuinely put themselves out there and want to generally create emotional connections and draw people in. And then there'll be others that just want to manipulate and sell to you. Mm. And so they put it out there in a way that looks like a relationship, but actually isn't. How do we, how do we spot the difference? I think a big indicator as to who's doing it purely from a manipulative point of view versus who cares is to look deeper than the content that's being published and to look at the comments and the interactions. I think brands that genuinely do care and are genuinely seeking after, you know, seeking these relationships and engagements, if people comment on their posts, they'll reply. They'll have very frank, honest, personal conversations they'll sign off comments using their name if someone leaves a reviewer or testimonial the brand will respond to that in a genuine heartfelt that's lovely thank you so much you know an easy way to tell the difference is if you look at the reviews on a facebook page of a business and if there's loads of five-star reviews and if the response from the brand is non-existent or if it is the same copied and pasted thanks so much for your feedback, we look forward to seeing you again soon, then you know that there's a degree of um, yeah, disingenuity, that, that they're, they're not genuinely reading those and are actually being touched by those responses. If you've got very tailored individual personal responses, then that's a very strong indicator that there is someone at that business who is taking the time to really nurture those relationships rather than just try to artificially create them. So do you think then that technology is helping us be more human and be more real in the in the workplace in that, you know, and particularly at the moment where we're still largely working from home. And so we're seeing the inside of people's bedrooms, home offices, kids running in and out. Um, people are more casually dressed and therefore they're a bit more relaxed. Do you think that all of that is starting to be driven through through the marketing that's actually encouraging us to just be relaxed about doing business be relaxed about how do we create 
engagement, but but online, as opposed to, oh, we've got to be rather professional and sit up straight and wear a suit and be and look as though we know what we're doing. Are we moving away from that professionalism towards something that's a bit more human and a bit more real? I think we are. I honestly think we are. I think I, I look back, uh, you know, a couple of years ago to that example of that BBC News uh, interview uh, when the, you know, the, the professor was having to view and his child came into the room followed by mum. I remember how much of a big deal that was mm. when it happened. And we and, all felt his pain, didn't we? Yeah, we, we kind of felt his pain. We got, oh no, it, you know, car crash into you, that's terrible, that's awful. Fast forward to where we are now and it's a common occurrence mm. i you know i've been doing a lot of training over the last few months via via zoom and it's not uncommon at all for a, a child to wander in and it's not a problem i don't bat an eyelid that's just part of you know part of the the, the culture of working from home mm. i think on social media specifically as well we've seen a shift in the way in which we post content so stories content has become a really popular form of posting. So stories is the portrait orientation, pictures, videos, it's posted, it's there for 24 hours, and then it's deleted. Hugely popular on Snapchat and Instagram. It's just come out, it's not that, been out for that long on LinkedIn as well. So other platforms are starting um, to, to adapt it and to use it. And because it is very disposable content, because it's only there for 24 hours, I think people are a lot happier with filming and publishing content of themselves without kind of going, oh no, oh I know, I don't like how my face looks at that angle, the lighting's a bit bad there, oh I look fat in that. People are just happier and freer, just going, hey, this is me, this is what I'm up to, post gone forget about it mm. and so we've got a much more casual attitude and outlook towards the content that's going out there which I think is a much healthier approach to where we were kind of 2018-19 where there was huge pressure on everyone including young people to make sure that every single post was absolutely perfect I think that that hunt for perfection has lessened I think combined with the working from home culture that we're in I think people are just accepting that we're not perfect as people we are, we are human and that's okay and that business is made up of humans and if I look at you know I, I work with I work with a herd of horses and um, so I a lot of my videos are out in the field with my horses and a year ago I would have somebody and it and it would be with an iPhone. So it was it was informally done and in, in an amateur way. But I would have somebody with an iPhone and I would have some idea of what I was going to say. And we might spend a day filming lots of different short videos. Now I, I literally stand, put the iPhone in front of me. And if the wind is blowing and I took one, you know, only last week in the pouring rain, because people only ever see me on days when it's you know, on, on screen like this in my home office or so I took one of me feeding the horses in the pouring rain and the wind was blowing and the horses were bouncing and nobody sees those behind the scenes pictures. And a year ago, I wouldn't, I just wouldn't have put that out there. It would have been, you know, the wind on the camera would have been a problem. My hair being all over the place would have been a problem, but actually now it's okay to be, to be more real. Yeah. What, 
what are the what are the downsides of um what are the downsides of that are there any i think there are still some kind there are there are still instances where people are trying to create an artificial real them so they're deliberately staging the content to look you know it's kind of like oh i've just woken up you haven't just woken up you've been up for an hour doing your hair doing your makeup choosing an outfit um but there, there's almost a pressure and there is definitely a pressure on young people in particular um to be cultivating this still real genuine but still an element of perfect uh perfect realness or the perfect rough and ready yeah absolutely i mean that there's been instances of you know, many examples of um young people having two instagram accounts one that is their very polished this is me public perception profile and the other which is there no this is actually the behind the scenes real me but as much work goes into the latter as the former and that's a huge pressure on young people. Um, there is still to this day, and I think this will always be the case, there is a perception that you know social status is determined by your social influence online. And more and more people are aspiring to be these top level influencers that we see dominating this new genre, this new wave of celebrity. Um, who seemingly live their lives through social media and it's all very casual and it is all kind of that holding their phone, selfie in the wind and rain, but despite all of that, their life is perfect. And that creates a pressure on young people to think, well, their life's so perfect, mine is rubbish in comparison to that. And they're not necessarily appreciating how much editing and work is going into that that life that seemingly real life that, that those influencers are presenting mm. I've got a friend for example I've got a friend who lives um in the center of London lives pretty much right next to Wembley Stadium like couldn't get much closer that uh, and their social media suggests that they find it amazing living there that they can open the window and they can hear a concert, that they get part of that buzz and that atmosphere as you've got crowds of football fans going into the arena. You go for a drink with him and it's just you, you know, me and him, one-to-one. -one. He hates it. He can't get his car out of a weekend. He can't go shopping. Woe beside him if he's out of the house and he needs to come home just as it's kicking out time during a football match. It's a real inconvenience, but if you just knew what you saw on social media, you think, ah, oh, he's got it sorted. He's amazing. He's got this amazing place. Oh, I live in this rubbish place where nothing interesting happens. And it brings your own sense of self-worth down. Um, I think that's the biggest risk is that if we're moving into this stories content genre where everything is real and we believe everything to be real and unpolished, reality is that it's not and it's going to cause us to compare these polished lives with our own in a very negative way so it's not, and, and what comes up for me there is it's not it's not really real is it it's just a version of reality as opposed to so so is there is there something here around how do we truly be more real and vulnerable 
without it being seen as a as a weakness i mean i you know i genuinely believe that vulnerability is a massive strength used used in the right way it's it's a massive strength to say help i'm struggling um it's it's less of a strength sitting rocking in a corner um, mm. and so there's you know that we can use our vulnerability wisely and and then therein lies the, the challenge again of which one's real it's a very difficult position um exposing one's own vulnerabilities on social media unfortunately can often be misinterpreted and misconstrued as being attention seeking mm. and being a disingenuine attempt to get more likes to get more comments the classic example is someone posting that they're feeling really you know that they're feeling down they've had a bad day but they don't go into any detail and so you get friends commenting on it going oh my god what's happened what's going on and the reply is i'll message you i'll message you now that can be absolutely can and is often a genuine cry for help mm -hmm. it's someone who feels in a really vulnerable position for them just to say that they've had a bad day on social media and to not go into any detail that's a huge step and that's an important step for them unfortunately at the same time there are others that do it for less genuine reasons and it's kind of creating a bit of a, a boy who cried wolf scenario mm -hmm. I think in some instances the biggest challenge the, and the biggest uh, barrier that needs to be overcome is educating people at a young age as to what we're discussing today, as to what the, the environment, the world of social media is like and how things um, may not always be as they seem. It's something that I've done a lot of work with. I've worked with uh, schools in terms of working with the teachers to help them to communicate this kind of thing to young people, that that perfect life that so-and-so is presenting on Instagram isn't necessarily perfect and that it is wrong it, it's very self uh, it's very self you know, it's, it has a very negative uh, impact on yourself if you compare your life with the perceived presented lives of your peers online I think education at that young age is crucially important and I think if people have that greater understanding and that greater knowledge at that point it will allow them to see through content and to interpret the content they see uh, in a much safer way. It's really interesting, David, because what where where you're taking me is that dilemma, because we're, we're, we're having conversations today around is social media good for our health, bad for our health? And of course, it's not that binary. Mm. Um, but at least we're having we're having the conversations around it. We're also, and we've been talking today around we're starting to see inside people's homes and our dress sense is more relaxed. We might not have makeup on where we might have done before. Um, and so we're starting to be more real, but we mustn't confuse that with it's still a persona of sorts, and that we're, you know, the only person that sees me in my pajamas is my husband. So and I'm not just not going to be on social media in my pajamas <laughs> and nobody would want that and so and so as long as we hold it in that context of 
yes, it's okay for me to be more vulnerable, to be more raw, to be more real on social media, but to recognize that you're not going to see me, uh, you know, a snotty mess when my dog's died. Um, and, I, and I know for some people that that would be okay, but for me, that wouldn't be. Um, but that doesn't mean that I didn't share on social media, not on the business platforms, but on the, on my, with my friends groups, um, on Facebook, I shared about my dog dying and, and horses who've passed away in the, in the past. Um, so there's, there's always this balance. Do, is it then down to us to really be conscious of what recognizing that what we're seeing is what people want us to see and that there's elements and it's not binary that there's there's elements of vulnerability you know on a spectrum from the snotty mess when my dog died to you know when I win an award or when something brilliant happens and that and that to just understand that we're seeing a snapshot of a you know it's a bit like holiday photos you see you see the great beach you don't see the fact that there were cockroaches in the shower, or you might do, but but you know, mostly you wouldn't see that there was a crack down the wall. So you see, you're seeing the extremes, aren't you? You're seeing the cockroach in the shower and you're seeing the wonderful beach. You're not seeing the pretty average two-star hotel. You are. You, you are absolutely. And I think that there's a, there's an element of uh quality versus quantity that comes into this as well. Um if I post a status um, that you know my dogs died. Uh, to, to give that example, if I get a hundred people, one hundred and fifty people leaving a reaction to that post, then that gives me that sense of I've got lots. You know, lots of people care about me. That they, they've they've reacted. You know, you know, I'm I'm loved by many. It is kind of that thing, that process that you think you're going through. In reality someone leaving a love heart reaction on a post that's something that i'll do and then i'll keep scrolling and within seconds of doing that i'm watching a funny video of a cat on a washing machine or whatever it may be there is so much value in one-to-one dialogue and one-to-one conversations and it's something that i personally try to do with my friends my peers if i see someone is posted something they've had a bad day something's happened I take the time to send them a private message. Mm. And my hope is, is that they kind of latch on to private messages from, uh, you know, they latch on to those individual conversations, whether that's from me or from other people, and they take greater comfort in that than they do the, the wider just base reaction. It's the same at the other side of the scale. I, not long ago, I got engaged, posted it about it on Facebook, couple of you know a couple of hundred likes and reactions that's lovely that's really nice but the the things the interactions that really stood out to me were the handful of people that took the time to send me a personal message yeah and even if it was just a a private whatsapp message saying congratulations david that meant so much more than a dozen likes on the public post and again it's about kind of educating um people at a young age as to what the value of a like is. What does that actually, in the grand scheme of things, if someone's hit the like button or the love heart button on your post, what does that mean? What is that conveying to them? Is that a genuine kind of expression of love or is it a sense of, I I feel obliged to react in that way, so I'm gonna do it quickly before moving on to something else? 
Mm-hmm. And I think, again, having these conversations with people at a young age helps them to appreciate the value of these interactions. And in understanding that, it eases the burden on themselves to kind of gain that big social worth and to be bringing in hundreds of likes because actually it's not worth that much in the grand scheme of things. David, it's been fantastic to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. In talking to David, I'm struck by the balance that we need to have in how we use social media. At its core, it's about building personal relationships and provides an opportunity to create conversation with both new and existing people. It can empower the consumer to make decisions, as long as we don't use it in a manipulative way. It can inspire us to develop ourselves, as long as we don't fall into the trap of trying to be perfect. I'm left wondering how we educate ourselves and younger people to use technology for the greater good. How do you use social media for the greater good in the world? That's it for this week. You've been listening to Innovating Humanity, the official podcast for Birmingham Tech Week. I'm Jude Jennison, host of the podcast and founder of Leaders by Nature, a leadership and team development company. I hope you've been as inspired by this week's guest as I have. If you'd like to know more about how I help leaders and teams be more human in a world of technology, you may be surprised to discover I do it by working in a field with a herd of horses. Sound crazy? All innovation's crazy in the beginning. So if you like to think outside of the box and get rapid results, you can find out more at www.judejennison.com. And if you'd like to find out more about the exciting technology scene in Birmingham, hop onto the Birmingham Tech website at www.birminghamtechweek.com. Until next time, that's it from me, Jude Jennison, the official podcast partner for Birmingham Tech.